everyone, welcome back. Today is March 18th, and if it's Friday, then this is The Delve. Ever since the tragic attacks of September 11th, the U.S. and its allies have engaged in a war on terror, as coined by former President George W. Bush. This war on terror involved the occupation of countries such as Iraq and Afghanistan in search of those responsible for the 9-11 attacks. These military interventions would not have been possible without the drone. We're not talking about your average drone that hobbyists buy. Rather, the drones used by the military are large, multi-million dollar killing machines with the ability to strike a target anywhere, at any time. To enemy combatants, the sounds of the drone signal death. Operated by pilots thousands of miles away, drones provide the ability to wage war without friendly casualties. And in 2019, the Department of Defense spent more than $9 billion on drones. The benefits of drones have been extolled by our elected officials. Dozens of highly skilled Al-Qaeda commanders, trainers, bomb makers, and operatives have been taken off the battlefield. Plots have been disrupted that would have targeted international aviation, U.S. transit systems, European cities, and our troops in Afghanistan. However, the use of drones has led to some problems, most notably the death of civilians overseas. According to Air Wars, a nonprofit dedicated to documenting the civilian casualties of drone strikes, Drone strikes have killed more than 2,000 civilians since they began reporting incidents. Sometimes the civilian casualty is incidental. Other times it is the result of poor intelligence on the part of the U.S. Tonight, the U.S. military admitting to a horrific mistake that left seven innocent children and three innocent adults, including an aid worker for an American company, dead. I offer my profound condolences to the family and friends of those who were killed. Our investigation now concludes that the strike was a tragic mistake. To dive deeper into this problem, I sat down with former New York Times national security reporter Scott Shane. Scott is the author of the book Objective Troy, which discusses the case of Anwar al-Awlaki, the first U.S. citizen chosen for targeted killing via drone strike by the CIA. And now, here's my interview with Scott Shane. Hi, Scott. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Before we talk about all things drones, can you introduce yourself to the listeners? Sure. Uh, I was a reporter for 40 years. The last 15 of them were at the New York Times covering national security. And I particularly focused on drones and what they called targeted killing mm-hmm. uh, from, I'd say, about 2009, you know, for five or more years. And I uh, got deeper into the question while working on a book that was published in 2015. The book is called Objective Troy. Mm. And the subtitle is A Terrorist, A President, and the Rise of the Drone. And it tells the story of Anwar al-Awlaki, mm. who was an American imam who eventually joined al-Qaeda and became the first U.S. citizen deliberately killed in a drone strike in Yemen. Right. I actually have a, a pretty okay. sizable section <laughs> on him. So we're definitely going to get to him. So we, we have a pretty global listener base and the shift in the usage of U.S. military drone strikes obviously has global implications. Why have drone strikes 
become a popular form of warfare? First and foremost, they, you know, these are missiles fired from aircraft that have no pilots aboard, have no human mm-hmm. beings aboard, and therefore they're seen in a, in a very narrow sense as very low risk for the attacker. In the case of the U.S., you're not putting American pilots or airmen or airwomen in harm's way. So obviously, it's a very tempting thing to say, we're going to go hit that target, we're going to go kill that terrorist, and we basically the risk will be zero in terms of human lives uh, on our side. And I think that you know the U.S. pioneered that, and many other countries watched with great interest and liked the idea and have picked up the technology, and we're seeing it right now in Ukraine. Uh, the Ukrainians are using right. uh, missiles fired from drones to hit Russian targets on the ground. And we, we've seen it in other places too, um, such as Israel using uh, drones in, uh, in Syria and Lebanon, um, the French in Mali. However, in recent years, there's been some concerns regarding civilian casualties of drone strikes. Can you elaborate on the civilian casualties as a result? Sure. I mean, it's not only in recent years, it's really almost from the beginning that it became an issue. But mm. in the U.S. history, the, the drone program was a covert action, or initially a covert action program under CIA, Central Intelligence Agency auspices, which is basically the most secret kind of operation that you can have. And therefore, the U.S. adopted this technology and put it into practice with basically no congressional debate, no public debate. Uh, They just said, this is too secret for anybody to talk about, anybody to know about. And what started happening fairly quickly in Pakistan, Afghanistan and Pakistan, was even though the US government was treating this as a big secret, it was obviously not a secret to people on the ground in those countries who saw things blow up and saw missiles streak out of the you know out of the sky sometimes they sure. could see the drone way up high sometimes they couldn't even see it but just a missile suddenly blew things up on the ground so it wasn't a secret to them so local media particularly I'm thinking in Pakistan began to write about these strikes so you had this peculiar situation where the US was pretending everything was secret and declining to talk about it But in the countries where the strikes were occurring, it was far from secret. And, you know, then there were some kind of key moments. There was a time when John Brennan, who at the time was Barack Obama's counterterrorism advisor in the White House, he made the statement that in the previous year, there had been no civilian casualties in American drone strikes. And that raised a lot of eyebrows. And there began to be some private efforts, journalistic efforts and private efforts to kind of track civilian deaths and drone strikes. And so you had these kind of two narratives emerging, one from the U.S. government saying, you know, on the one hand, everything's secret. But on the other hand, don't worry, you know, civilians are not dying in these strikes. We're just killing terrorists. And then these journalistic efforts and private efforts that were saying, Actually, we're getting lots of reports of civilians being killed. And it it took, I would say, it's really taken 10 years for the full picture to emerge 
of the inadequacy of the targeting that the U.S. has done, and this is not even to get into what other countries have done, but the U.S. has more experience at this than anyone. But what has gradually uh, become clear is that when the U.S. has recorded in its records that no civilians died in a particular strike, that usually amounted to wishful thinking uh, mm. or, or an educated guess. And when you think about it, it makes a lot of sense. You're talking about people who are usually in a bunker thousands of miles from the point of the strike, and they're watching video as it, uh, you know, a landscape is scrolling by as this drone flies, and they're seeing, you know, little people on the ground, and they're combining various sources of intelligence and saying, oh, see that guy standing there? It must be that guy we're hearing talk on his cell phone, or that guy that our, you know, our asset, our spy in the region told us was going to be at that, you know, that intersection. Uh, so let's take the shot. And, you know, increasingly it has become clear that, again, it's, it's pretty much an educated guess. It's not like they're just firing these things willy-nilly and not caring what they hit. Uh, they're doing the best they can, and it turns out that the best they can do is not nearly good enough to prevent civilian casualties. Is there some type of consideration for civilians in the area when a strike is about to happen? Or is the the value of the target, does that outweigh any type of collateral damage? Well, there have been shifting rules for the U.S., one set of rules for the CIA, another set of rules for the Pentagon, for the U.S. military. And I should say that the military and the CIA have cooperated very closely on these missions and, you know, are, are often using essentially the same equipment. So it's sort of who's actually pushing the button and whose intelligence is being used to make the decision to, to take a strike. So there have been rules for, for both those entities, and they have shifted over time. Generally speaking, mm. I think they've gotten, they got tougher gradually over Obama as, as word got out of the, the extent of civilian casualties. So for a long time, the CIA had a rule that was basically a near zero risk of killing a civilian, but there were certain sort of exceptions. One exception was if there was an extremely high value target and it was you know, a, a rare opportunity to kill that person. This would be, for example, an Al-Qaeda leader or, or an ISIS leader. And that person was with a civilian, often a spouse or a child. They would sometimes override those considerations and you know, deliberately kill the person knowing that they might or, or probably would kill a family member or, or more. So the, the rules have, have shifted. The problem is in the, the actual, in actual practice, in execution, even if the rule says a near zero risk of civilian casualties, that's still based on the judgment of the operators who are watching their video screens and you know, making their judgment about who's a civilian and who's not a civilian. And those judgments have increasingly been exposed as way, way off. Very often, the operators 
believe they've killed, say, five members of al-Qaeda, five terrorists. And when actual investigation is possible on the ground, which is you know not frequent, uh, but when someone really gets to the bottom of what happened on the ground, it turns out that it might have been a family of five, five civilians, or one terrorist and you know four members of his family, that kind of thing. So the the mismatch between who the drone operators think they're killing and who they are actually killing has come to light. It's taken years, but now it's it's quite glaring that there's a huge um, difference between those two. And it's a big problem for the US military and CIA. And I, I think they recognize it, but of course, you know, they count on public apathy. And a lot of times, the, you know, the only thing uh, the American public learns is they're killing terrorists in a far off country right. and keeping us safe. So it's it, it remains, uh, you, you know, a politically quite convenient way to carry out these lethal missions. So there's not like a team that would then be dispatched to the site to actually see who was killed, who is not killed. These are all just kind of guesses. Yeah, I mean, you know, the the uh, the National Security Agency is the is the big eavesdropping intelligence agency of the U.S. government, and this so they they're picking up all kinds of signals, cell cell calls and and uh, text messages from the scene. And so they might be able to intercept a call that says, you know, an Al-Qaeda call saying they just killed five of our guys, you know. And mm-hmm. so they, that would feed into the after action report, as they call it. In Also, the CIA recruits agents who are usually locals who are on the ground, who are paid for information. So they might be asked to report what they've heard or what they've seen. And they might be able to say, you know, you you actually, it was a bad shot and you killed five people in in somebody's family. It had nothing to do with Al-Qaeda. So they they might, you know, there's numerous sources. There are local press reports, which sometimes can be can be reliable because reporters in a local area know the people or can get to the area and, and ask around. Right. So it's not like they're completely without input. But I think there's a big psychological effect that has really interfered with accurate reporting on these strikes. And I'll tell you a story that made a big impression on me, and I think illustrated this in a, in a major strike. The first strike in Yemen in many years, there had been one strike shortly after 9-11, uh, I think it was in 2002 in Yemen, but the first big airstrike in Yemen occurred in December of 2009. And it was, in this case, it was not drones, it was cruise missiles, but essentially the principle applies. Um, these missiles were fired from a ship off, you know, hundreds of miles away offshore at a target in Yemen. And it was a sort of, it was seen by the US as a sort of emergency because some Al Qaeda guys were plotting to go to Sana'a, the capital of Yemen, and attack embassies, Western embassies and other Western targets. And supposedly people were actually putting on suicide vests and that kind of thing. It was literally 
about to start. And so the U.S. called a big strike. And the, the weapon they had at that time was cruise missiles. And so they used the cruise missiles. About three weeks after that strike, it just happened that uh, General David Petraeus, who is the head of Central Command over all the forces in the Middle East, went to visit the call on the president of Yemen at that time. And the president of Yemen was generally pretty happy with the U.S. trying to kill members of al-Qaeda in his country. But he said something like, you really have to be careful with the civilian casualties. And Petraeus said, we know all what they said to each other because essentially the minutes of the meeting were were later leaked by WikiLeaks and became public. So the president of Yemen says, you killed a bunch of civilians. And Petraeus says, I don't think so. What are you talking about? And and Petraeus turns to his aides and and says, uh, there was only one civilian killed. It was the wife of one of the Al-Qaeda guys. Uh And it turned out that was one of the rare occasions where you had a full investigation on the ground. And because the Yemeni parliament sent a sort of a bunch of investigators there and they did a report on it. And there were a bunch of journalistic efforts also to understand what had happened there. And it turned out they'd killed, I think it was about 41 women and children. Wow. From an encampment uh, mm-hmm. of Bedouins, of people who were basically sort of working for the Al-Qaeda camp. So there was sort of a essentially a civilian camp of people who were cooking and doing the laundry and that kind of thing for these Al-Qaeda guys. So, so it was seen in Yemen as a, you know, as a colossal disaster. What was so interesting to me about that was here three weeks after the strike, David Petraeus, who was the senior military official who was actually overseeing that strike in real time, clearly was completely misinformed about who had been killed in that strike. And when you think about why that can be, how that could possibly happen, uh, and you just think about human psychology, the people pushing the button, and this applies to every drone strike, the person pushing the button you know, is sort of crossing his fingers and hoping he's right that that is only Al-Qaeda guys on the ground below the drone, and that no uh, civilians sort of, you know, kids run run past as the, as the uh, drone, as the missile is, you know, dropping to the ground. They, they hope they're killing terrorists, they're killing the people they want to kill, and they're not killing civilians. So, there's a tendency to look at what happened afterwards and say, yeah, it looks like we did the right thing. We killed all the terrorists and there were no civilians killed. That's just a natural thing to want to believe, even if you have a little bit of doubt, even if you're trying to be honest. Mm-hmm. And of course, maybe you're not trying to be honest. Maybe you're thinking, oh boy, we blew it, but I don't want to get in trouble. So I'm going to say we only killed terrorists. But you get it passed up the chain of command and the people who are feeding the information all the way up the chain of the command to a guy like David Petraeus, at every step of the way, there's probably a little bit of fudging, a little bit of laundering, and a little bit of a desire not to fully express any doubts that you might have. But the result is that uh, of that is is that the U.S. Uh, you know command had absolutely no idea of who they'd actually killed in those strikes, and uh, and I think we've seen that pattern again and again and again. And, you know, again, it's, it's quite a natural thing. If you put yourself in the shoes of the person 
taking that strike, making that uh, momentous decision, you're going to want to convince yourself that you did the right thing. You're not going to want to tell your boss, uh, geez, boss, I really shouldn't have pulled the trigger because we killed a bunch of kids and women and, and right. didn't get terrorists. And this might be an impossible question to ask, but is there any ballpark number as to how many civilian casualties have been the result of U.S. drone strikes? You know, there are official counts and there are unofficial counts, uh, but I think it's probably to fair to estimate that the number of people killed by now would probably be in the low thousands of civilians killed would probably be in the low thousands. You know, it's impossible to come up with an exact count. Uh, I'm sorry, think, the, but, the low thousands are, you, do you mean like yeah, you know, 2,000, like, uh, 3,000? Yeah, two, 3,000, I would guess. Wow. That's a wild guess. And, um, you know, it's it, it could be more than that. I mean, one thing you can say about drone drones and the drone program is, you know, there were basically two claims for this technology. One is that, you know, it, it, it sort of had pinpoint precision. And the other is that you could identify from the air, uh, from the video screen, who you were shooting at. And it seemed like in the context of the two big wars, Iraq and Afghanistan, where the casualties, civilian casualties were in the thousands and where and eventually the hundreds of thousands. And, you know, and where we didn't seem to be actually making progress towards the goal, the original goal having been to protect the United States from terrorists. Uh, you know, when Obama came in and embraced the drone in a big way, you know, that was the thinking. And of those two claims on behalf of the drone, the pinpoint precision of the strike and the, you know, the the pretty much complete knowledge of who you're killing on the ground. The first one remain, you know, has really been proven true for the most part. The second one, I think, has been disproven, proven false. But it is true that this is a targeted, fairly small-scale weapon. And they've even, in some cases, I know, uh, reduced the munitions in the uh, in the warhead, in the in the Hellfire missile that they have generally used their other missiles as well, but the Hellfire missile. And in some cases, there have been strikes where, you know, people in one room of a house have been killed and people in other rooms of that house have, have been okay. So, you know, relative to the kinds of bombing that we have done historically, certainly in World War II, in the Vietnam War, and even more recently in Iraq and Afghanistan, although, and I think they've gotten better about targeting and, and understanding what they're dropping bombs on. This is still a relatively precise weapon, and the death toll tends to be small. You're not talking about hundreds of people killed from a drone strike. So the, uh, the toll, even of civilians, does not climb you know, as it has in the big wars into the tens and hundreds of thousands. You know, so it, it remains um, in, in that sense a, a sort of small scale weapon. I, I want to change track quickly, if we can, and talk about your book, Objective Troy. Uh, you discussed the killing of Anwar al-Awlaki. He was an American citizen who the CIA targeted for assassination in Yemen. It seems 
petrifying that the U.S. government would launch a drone strike against an American abroad. What, what level of bad guy you have to be to get this treatment? Can you give us a brief history or brief background on who Anwar Awalaki was and why he was chosen to be assassinated? Sure. So um, I should say the name Objective Troy is because if you get on the military's kill list, so-called, the list of people who uh, have been identified by the authorities as legitimate terrorist targets, uh, on, the military calls you an objective and gives you a code name. And in his case, he was given the code name Objective Troy. Wow. But many years earlier, he grew up in a family, a Yemeni family that ironically loved the United States. His father had come to the U.S. Uh, initially on a Fulbright grant and stayed for about a dozen years. He got his Ph.D. in agricultural economics and taught for a few years at a U.S. university. And Anwar Awlaki, his son, was born uh, while they were living in New Mexico, actually. He was at New Mexico State. And so uh, by virtue of being born in the U.S., uh, Anwar was an American citizen. And he spent his first seven years in the U.S. So he spoke excellent English and was going to American schools. Then they moved back to Yemen. His father became a prominent citizen there. He was a minister of agriculture. He was chancellor of a couple of different universities. And so Anwar spent his sort of uh, teenage years, his adolescence in Yemen. Uh, so he was native in both English and Arabic. Then his dad sent him back to the States to go to college at Colorado State, where he did an engineering degree. But to his father's dismay, he got extremely interested in religion and sort of dumped engineering. So he then was an imam, a Muslim cleric, at a series of mosques, kind of got his start in Denver, then he was in San Diego, and then eventually he took a job at a big mosque uh, right across the Potomac River from, uh, from Washington, D.C., in Fairfax County, Virginia. And he was also working on a Ph.D. Anwar was working on a Ph.D. at George Washington University. And he was... Uh, becoming more and more prominent at the time of the 9-11 attacks. And he actually denounced the 9-11 attacks. He told his brother that he thought they were a huge setback for Islam. And he seems to have sincerely thought that what Al-Qaeda had done was a terrible thing. But he also was quite skeptical of U.S. foreign policy and, and uh, uh, of the war in Afghanistan, which, was, of course, started after that. And eventually, he left the U.S. It turned out that he left the U.S. because he found out the FBI had been following him around and had um, learned that he regularly visited prostitutes. Right, right. And Anwar Awlaki was married, had some kids, and preached a very conservative uh, brand of Islam. So, you know, obviously that put him in jeopardy of being exposed as a hypocrite, and that I, really I was... prompted him. I was go. actually very surprised to read that in your book. I was like, whoa. <laughs> yeah, it's, whoa. Um, you know, it's a pattern that we've seen in, among U.S. preachers many times that these conservative in this, you know, I'm thinking of conservative Protestant Christian preachers 
who turn out to have uh, right. another side to their uh, activities. But mm-hmm. anyway, he moved first to the UK, where he, you know, kind of fell in with some pretty radical folks. And then he eventually went to Yemen. And after uh, a couple of years, joined Al-Qaeda and emerged as the leading voice in English for Al-Qaeda and for the whole sort of jihadist ideology. I want to get into kind of what were the legal justifications uh, for the killing made by the government? So this was inside the Obama administration, a very big deal, in part because people might remember that on Christmas Day, December 25th in 2009, there had been a young Nigerian man who tried to blow up a plane. He was a passenger on this plane. He tried to blow himself up on this plane, which is about to land in Detroit. And it was an international flight. And the bomb fortunately did not go off. It burned him. And some people jumped on him and right. he was arrested and he's in prison now. This is but the it turned out that Anwar bomber. Exactly, the underwear mm-hmm. bomber. And uh, it turned out that Anwar Awlaki had recruited and trained this guy and had, uh, you know, essentially was the brains behind this plot. So that and and a series of other things persuaded the Obama administration that they needed to do something about Anwar Awlaki, that he'd gone from being just an ideologue, just a propagandist for Al-Qaeda, to being an operator, to being someone who was really, really trying to kill people. And So Obama asked the Justice Department for a legal opinion on whether it would be legal and constitutional to kill an American citizen in these circumstances. And the Justice Department wrote two secret legal opinions, which I finally, after a four-year court battle, got a hold of in redacted form, so we know what uh, what they say. And essentially, they said that if you know, that there's an, uh, a right of self-defense in international law. And if this guy is trying to kill Americans, you can fight back. And if it's not possible to arrest him, if it's not feasible is the word that they used, mm. to arrest him and, you know, put him on trial, then it is legal to kill him. When I was doing my book, I, you know, I'm not a lawyer and I wondered to what degree that opinion was accepted in the legal community. So with the help of of a constitutional law professor, I polled about three dozen constitutional law professors and retired constitutional law professors in the US. And I just asked them, was it legal and constitutional for Obama to order the death of an American citizen in this case? And about one- Yeah, I was too. And about one third said, yes, it was. They were on board with the Justice Department opinion. About one third said, no, it's not, Mm. not legal, not constitutional. And about one third said, it depends. And they wanted, you know, to get down into the gory details. Uh, Mm. But to me, that showed that it was an unsettled question and still is an unsettled question. Obama, who initially felt constrained by the secrecy that surrounded this program, eventually, about two years after Aleki was killed, gave a speech on the drone program. And Aleki's killing was sort of the centerpiece of this speech by the president of the United States. And 
he said that he believed, of course, that this was legal and constitutional. And the analogy that he offered was, he said, if a gunman, a criminal gunman, is aiming his gun at a crowd of innocent people, then the police can legally shoot, a police sniper can shoot to take that gunman out, to kill that gunman. There's no criminal charge. There's no trial. There's just Mm. an emergency situation where you kill the gunman to save the civilians, save the innocents. Mm -hmm. And he said, essentially, that was the situation that you had with Anwar Awlaki. He was constantly trying to kill Americans. And therefore, Obama argued this was legal and smart to try to kill the guy. One other thing that we might uh, might be met, worth t- touching on briefly, and that is that when the Obama administration, you know, had in May of 2011 killed Osama bin Laden, the founder of Al Qaeda, and then in September of 2011 killed Anwar Awlaki, this very prominent American terrorist, you, you know, they were feeling pretty good about themselves. They're feeling like you know, we're kind of on a roll here and we're protecting the United States and so on. But one of the things they had not fully counted on was that this guy, Anwar Aliki, was essentially a creature of the internet. And as I said, he had tens of thousands of videos on YouTube. And when he was killed, those YouTube videos began to pro- proliferate very quickly right. because like the Christian religion, the Islamic religion has a tradition of martyrdom. Mm. And he was portrayed widely by Al Qaeda as a martyr. And this essentially enhanced the status of his voice, including his calls for people to join the jihad, to join the fight against America. And so for several years after he was killed, there were a series of major terrorist attacks in the West some in France, mostly in the U.S., in which the attackers had come very heavily under under the influence of Anwar Awlaki and his videos. And so the Boston Marathon bombing in 2013, the Orlando, Florida attack on the Pulse nightclub in 2015, uh, where 49 people were shot by gunmen. These were all guys who had been obsessed with Anwar Awlaki and uh, found him to be very persuasive. It's hard to say for certain whether the attacks might have happened without his influence. Mm. But certainly, if you look into those cases, in my opinion, it's probable that without Anwar Awlaki's influence, some of those, if not all of them, would not have happened. So this is the sort of afterlife of this guy and the back, you know, you know sort of the uh, unintended consequences of this strike that went on for quite a few years. And eventually it took a long time, but eventually YouTube took his videos offline. Mm-hmm. And in the last couple of years, I don't think there have been attacks that have, you know, been connected to his influence. Wow. You know, first of all, Scott, thank you so much for coming on to the Delve. Where can people find you in your work? Uh, well, the the book Objective Troy is uh, is available out there in hardback and paperback, and 
I, I've done some teaching. I retired from the New York Times at the end of 2019. Uh, I've done some teaching and I'm working on a book actually about the nonfiction book about the history of slavery. So I'm I'm kind of out of the national security business at the moment. Okay. Um, but but my work is also on the New York Times website, of course, from uh, all this drone coverage right. uh, can be found there. Right. Perfect. Scott, thank you so much again. My pleasure. Thank you to everyone for tuning in. I encourage you to like, follow, and subscribe to our podcast by searching the Delve Podcast on your favorite podcast platform and Instagram and Twitter. I'm Chalen. This is the Delve. I'll see you next Friday.